following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Hi, my name is Karen, and I'm going to read the Gospel reading today, and it is the Magnificat. It can be found on page 832, and it is Luke 146 through 55, Mary's Song of Praise. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Indeed, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has come to the aid of the child of Israel in remembrance of his mercy. According to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. So these words from Luke chapter 1 are typically known by the Latin word that would start them out, magnificat. Uh, as you know, it would go on magnificat anima mea dominum, but we don't need to show off our Latin uh, skills today. My soul magnifies the Lord which is a fascinating idea. What an interesting choice of verbs in that sentence. But one thing you might not know about the Magnificat is that it's the longest statement by any woman in the New Testament. And it is spoken, of course, as Karen said, by Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, Karen and I both grew up in uh, New England. Um, You can probably tell by listening to Karen. And I love the sound of Karen's voice because it reminds me of home. And we were talking about the way that Uh, In that part of the country, Mary is sometimes um, uh, visualized. And and I don't know if this is true in other parts of the country, but Karen mentioned like the big kind of bathtub-looking thing that Mary's in, um, in yards and gardens and things. And it got me thinking about our visions of Mary that we have. Maybe it's from sacred artwork. Maybe it's from iconography from a church setting. Maybe it is from uh, the, let's be honest, slightly weird uh, statues that we find in people's backyards. Um, Maybe it's from somewhere else. But if you have a vision of Mary, the mother of Jesus, as a serene, meek, quiet woman, uh, first of all, I'd ask you to interrogate in your own mind where that might have come from and what your expectations on women might be and on mothers specifically. Um, But if that's your vision of Mary, then when you read something like the Magnificat, if you're not careful, you might miss what is actually there, which is powerful, prophetic political protest language. Yes, that was four Ps in a row. Remember that Mary's people, the Israelites, were at that time under the rule of a corrupt puppet puppet king, King Herod, um, who was a Jew, but who was kind of like the puppet of the Roman emperor. And he was used by the emperor to oppress his own people. Um, And so when Mary's song says... He has brought down the powerful from their thrones. That is very clearly a political statement. There's no other way to read it. 
It's a protest song. This is no Pledge of Allegiance. This is no My Country Tis of Thee. This is no God Save the Queen um, or King. It's a defiant statement against the corrupt rulers of the world who enrich themselves on the backs of the poor, who oppress the weak rather than caring for them, who fatten themselves while the people go hungry. This song, the Magnificat, is is closer to the black power salute at the 1968 Olympics than uh, a kind of meek and mild, tender bedtime song for the little baby Jesus. And it comes right out of stanzas of praise to God, which is remarkable to me that both of those things apparently fit together like that. But I do have this new image of, of Mary with her fist raised in the air, right? Um, <laughs> and when I started thinking about that, I started thinking about, we haven't, we haven't um, done a joint worship service with Baber AME Church in quite some time, since before the pandemic. But when we would be over at Baber for Sunday morning worship, if you've ever joined us for those Sundays, you remember that we would almost always sing, lift every voice and sing the, the black national anthem. And Pastor Simmons would say, when the third verse comes around, put your fist in the air. And I'd be like, am I allowed to do this right now? I'm not sure this is my gesture. But I did it because, you know, when Pastor Simmons tells me to do something, I do it. Um, And it it was like this solidarity with with the oppression of the people that we were worshiping alongside and, and the history of our country. Anyway, perhaps that gesture of a, of a raised fist in righteous anger comes very naturally to you right now. You look around at the world and you think, yeah, there's a lot of things that I would raise my fist in righteous anger about. Especially if you're part of a marginalized community and have recently started to find your voice and you're not, not interested in being meek and mild and um, quiet anymore. But even if you're not, any one of us could look around at, say, for example, the economic injustices of our world today. Yes, in our country, the richest country in the world, your fist might be raised for a reason that sounds quite similar to what Mary was saying in the Magnificat. Longing for a day with your fist in the air in righteous anger when it would be true, finally, what she sort of prophesied in this song, that God lifted up the lowly and filled the hungry with good things, and sent the rich away empty. Did you catch that phrase, by the way, the first time? Send the rich away empty. So Mary's song, so full of praise to God and defiance of the injustice of human society, really does ring true for us today. We could put our fists in the air, Do you feel comfortable putting your fist in the air? If not, maybe you just make a fist. Make a fist and kind of keep it down here where no one can see it. (laughs) Thank you. There's a a couple. It doesn't come totally naturally to us, but I'm trying to get you to embody the spirit and attitude of the Magnificat in a more, like, full and probably honest way. And the more righteous anger you have, the easier that gesture might be for you. But here's the problem. And listen, some of you aren't putting your fists in the air right now, but 
I, I follow some of you on social media. <clears throat> There's a lot of righteous anger. I see it. Righteous anger, I would describe as a sustainable, renewable resource. I would describe it as clean energy <laughs> for the work of justice. Righteous anger can burn down some stuff, the stuff that needs to get burned down. Righteous anger. But a lot of us are not running on righteous anger. We're running on regular old unleaded anger. <laughs> now listen, I, this is like the most pastor cliche in the world, but I am preaching to myself, y'all. <laughs> My anger sometimes is, doesn't feel very righteous to me. And some of the anger being expressed uh, in the world today, even at things that I also am angry about, does not seem like righteous anger, doesn't seem like sustainable, renewable, clean energy for the work of justice. It actually seems like the kind of thing that's about ready to burn down its own house. It seems like the kind of thing that's going to leave you and maybe me smoldering and smoking and choking on that smoke. No good to anybody, by the way, at that point. No more flame to burn down the things that need burning down because we burned ourselves out with an anger that was not rooted in righteousness. And so I would say, before you can hope to find righteous anger, you need to root yourself in a spiritual practice. And, you know, for, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, I think that the place to start is to be rooted in a practice that is one of both loving God and of being loved by God and of allowing that love expressed best in the, in the death and resurrection of Jesus to be overflowing from us out into the world. And when that is in place, then you can maybe move toward righteous anger. But let's stick with Mary for a minute and let's stick with the uh, kind of embodiment of Mary, maybe even the gestures and expressions of Mary's attitudes because I think she has more to give us than just a raised fist of righteous anger. And I think before we join her in that protest, we have to experience some of those other gestures that we can see her making, or at least imagine her making. And I'm going to propose two of them for you. Uh, but we do have to back up in the gospel reading just a little bit. Um, so before the Magnificat, the other great moment in the scriptures that has a fancy name with Mary is what? Who knows? The Annunciation. Thank you, church nerd, whoever you were. So if we want to know the Annunciation and how it goes down, we have to go back a little bit to Luke 1.26. The Annunciation uh, is simply the moment when the angel announces to Mary what's going to happen to her. In other words, you're going to become pregnant and have this baby and, and so on. Right? Before she sings the Magnificat, before her soul begins to magnify the Lord, she has this experience. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. 
The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. Let's look more closely at verse 29. When the angel said, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you, it says Mary was much perplexed by his words. <laughs> and then a little later, to be specific, uh, if, in case you're not clear what, what else I'm perplexed about, how can this be since I am a virgin? And so this... I imagine Mary um, giving the, what I would call the first gesture on the way to the raised fist of righteous anger, which is a furrowed brow. Can you do this with me? Your forehead might not be quite as wrinkly as mine, but can you do, you, when, do you make this, when do you make this face? <laughs> Some of us make this face 100 times a day. We live our lives in a state of constant perplexity. <laughs> I think um, the, the expression, the gesture, if you will, goes really well with the question that Mary asks, which is, how can this be? As you look around the world around you, how many different occasions are there for you to ask that question? How can this be? Or as you hope for something that seems impossible, you might ask, how could that ever be? This is the key question that makes Mary furrow her brow. I don't know that, like, you know, I don't know if we have any sacred art that has Mary doing that, but I like to imagine it. I think the question, how can this be, is a sacred and holy question. It's a question that Mary was not afraid to ask, but which we might not be comfortable asking all the time especially in, if we ever had a moment like Mary has described in this passage where the angel comes to her and starts to say something like, um, I'll go back to my main roots, wicked important. <laughs> the question, how can this be, is sort of like off the table. You're supposed to just jump to the yes, I'm in moment, right, if you're a truly holy person. But Mary, whom all generations have called blessed, asked this question, how can this be? And what was the answer that she got? Nothing will be impossible with God. And the reason that no one's going, ah, is because you all know that that is not an answer to the question that she asked. I asked, how can this be? I imagine Mary saying. <laughs> it's not a very specific answer. Nothing will be impossible with God. 
But it is the answer that she was given, and it's the answer that we are so often given. And it is enough to be going along with, if you're willing to trust. Even when you don't get the specific answer you're seeking, if you can get that moment of reassurance that nothing will be impossible with God, you can maybe take that next step in your plan. Some of you are facing a really difficult thing right now, and you don't, you don't see how it can be. You don't have a roadmap for how to get to your destination. And so sometimes that leaves us feeling like we can't start. I don't know about you. If I can't see the whole thing, I don't want to go. But nothing is impossible with God. And the thing that you are facing right now, I am not telling you Will, that it's going to come out exactly the way you want it to. I think probably the specifics of the angel's answer for Mary were not what she had in mind. And yet, nothing was impossible with God. I don't want you to skip the part where your brow is furrowed. I do not want you to skate past perplexity because that moment is holy and that moment is crucial, actually, on the road to spiritual fulfillment and wholeness and wellness. If you are not willing to let yourself sit with the question and ask it out loud, it's just going to come back to you in the future in a different form. Probably be harder then. I truly, truly believe that for many, many, many people, probably most people, maybe even all people, the honest questions and doubts that we have become the crucial starting point, the foundation for our spiritual growth. But that can't happen until we are honest about those questions. So, Mary with her brow furrowed. That's the first gesture on the way to the raised fist of righteous anger. Now let's look more closely at verse 38 in uh, chapter 1 here, onto this next gesture. Mary's eventual response to the news of what would happen to her after the question was to say, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Mary decided that she didn't need to have the most satisfying answer in the world. She didn't need to get the exact precise information that she was probably seeking with her question in order for her to say, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. She didn't need the answer in order to become a vessel for God's good work in the world. Her obedience in this situation is really remarkable. And I do believe, actually, since you asked, that, that Mary could have said, no thank you, to the angel, and that God would have accomplished God's purposes in some other way. But Gary, uh, Mary did not say, that would have been weird if it was Gary, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> Mary did not say, no thank you. Her trust in God allowed her to become the vessel through which God would do this good work in the world. And I don't want to gloss over that, because for an unwed teenage peasant girl to be found pregnant in a society where woman's value was entirely based on her ability to bear children for her husband to enlarge his family, uh, 
out-of-wedlock pregnancy, not by the husband, was literally a death sentence in some cases. At a minimum, it would have led to complete um, marginalization and ostracization from the society. But that did not prevent her from accepting the calling that God had placed on her life. And very importantly, it did not stop her from succeeding in that calling and becoming part of that purpose. So sometimes to get to the, 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 this second gesture, which I'll tell you what it is in just a minute, we have to be willing to say yes to something that doesn't quite make any sense to us just yet. The second gesture that I would imagine Mary doing in this case, at least the one that I think would help us embody her attitude, is uh, a gesture of open-handedness. So maybe you can put your hands like this, open out in front of you. Imagine being in Mary's shoes in this story, saying, here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. This, by the way, is kind of the opposite of where we're trying to get permission to raise our fists in righteous anger. And I love the fact that you cannot do this until you have done this. We want to skip ahead. We want to skate past the difficult questions. We want to be so self-assured that we never have a question. We want never to have to do anything that isn't exactly our plan. We want to, we want to scream right into protests and politics and all those other P words with our fists in the air. But I think Mary's example gives us more of a progression than that. And as I think about these three expressions, and again, I, I, I sort of made up the actual expressions, but I do believe it's true to what we see in the scripture here. The furrowed brow, the palms open, and only then the fist raised. They show this transition in Mary's heart from perplexity to acceptance and obedience all the way to empowerment. And only after you have been perplexed, and only after you have become willing and open to do a hard thing, are you ready to join Mary with her fist raised in righteous anger. So I want you to ask yourself, have I skipped ahead? Have I skipped these steps? And as you get the answer to that question, it might be yes. <laughs> and that might cause you to think, oh man, I'm, I've got this all wrong. I'm a terrible person. I'm not doing the thing that Mary shows me to do. I'll invite you to be kind to yourself. You are not alone. Probably everybody in the room is experiencing some version of that right now. The question you should ask yourself is, why am I not right already? But rather, what does God ask of me right now, wherever I am? What is the next posture or gesture for me? Maybe you've spent a lot of time with the furrowed brow and you're ready to move on to the open hands. It's possible that God's like, go ahead, kiddo, put the fist in the air. You are all ready to go. The season of Advent probably calls us to something else, though, which is to go back, to slow down, to deepen our spiritual practice, to revisit the source of what righteous anger would actually be, to admit perplexity, to commit to openness, 
to dwell in love. And if that's what you're trying to do in this Advent season, I will invite you to come and receive communion. Not because it's a tradition, although it is, and that's important. Uh, not because it's just like the thing that you're supposed to do and you don't want somebody to see you not doing it. Because by the way, if you don't want to do it, nobody will look sideways at you in this room. That's my promise to you. And if they do, you come and tell me and I'll have a conversation with them. <laughs> this is a place where you, you can go at your own pace. But if you are looking uh, for sustenance, if your soul is hungry and feels weak, too weak to open your hands, for example, too weak to raise your fist, this is the table of the Lord where he wants to nourish you. I truly believe that. This sacrament, uh, yes, it's a tradition, but it's also the real presence of Christ. It's also a, uh, a, an act of community which is strengthening in its own way. And it is the sacrament of spiritual nourishment. And so I'd invite you to come if you'd like. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com. 